The following message extends the teaching or preaching ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. The speakers you will hear may be our church pastors, lay teachers, or outside guest speakers. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this material in any format. May God bless your study of his word. A few quick announcements to highlight. This Wednesday night begins the Wednesday Night Men's Fellowship downstairs in lower level one. We're going to be discussing the book Repentance, A Daring Call to Real Surrender by Jack Miller. This is an excellent book. It's written by somebody who taught at Westminster, but it's not written in such a way that you're not going to understand it. Really good book, good principles in here. We're looking forward to studying that and discussing that. So, it's open to anybody that wants to come. Come Wednesday night, lower level one, which is go down the stairs, first room on the right. Starts at 6.30, we end at 7.30. So if you're interested in that, show up. September 30th, our church is sponsoring a, an event uh, that's open to several churches in the area called Domestic Abuse, Extending Redemption, Recognize Response and Rescue. If we're thinking that abuse doesn't happen in the church, we're, we're kidding ourselves. Uh, it is present in churches and it's a great seminar for us to kind of get an understanding of what that's all about. How can we be of assistance to those that are going through it? How can we help deliver people who may be struggling with that? So I'm looking forward to it. That's an all-day event, I think, 9 to 4. You can register online. It's $15. So if you're interested in that, we encourage you to, to sign up for that. Uh, on your table, you'll see flyers for the retreat. It has some information on the back. I'm not going to read all of it, but um, October 13th to 15th, we really need to know if you're coming sooner than later. We've got to make a decision this coming Tuesday as to whether or not we're going to cut a couple cabins out or not. So if you're planning to attend that retreat, please go online and register for that in the next couple days. Yes, it's past October 31st, but we are extending the early bird discount. So if you missed that, go ahead and sign up. You'll get the early bird discount, which is like a $65 savings. The price will be $85 when you register. That cutoff, I think, is next weekend. So please register for the retreat sooner than later. That helps us get an idea of what we can anticipate. Uh, Our capacity is about 75. Right now, I think we're sitting around 40, last I heard. So there's still room. But uh, if you're at all thinking about it, please please register, and, and we hope to see you there. There's enough guys that have been to a retreat here. You guys can help me out. Let's be a little interactive here. What would you say is a highlight of the retreat, those of you who have gone? Food? Yep. Speaker? Yep. Bonfires? There's more to the retreat than that. Nobody's saying the road time. Make new friends? Yep. You're stuck in a car with somebody you don't know? You get to know them? No, it's a great opportunity to really form some friendships. I will tell you this. You go on a retreat. You come away with some new friends that you didn't go there with. And it's just a great environment to uh, to spend some time together. The food is great. I could ask Eric to plug that prime rib again. but Listen, we're no vegetarians here, right? We all just ate pig. The steaks there, I'm telling you, will be the biggest, best steak you ever had. And we get to eat it as we get tugged around in a big lake, right? On a boat. We're going to do that this year again. If we can max out our capacity... We're going to eat on land, and then we'll have the, the cruise just to fellowship with one another. Because we maxed out the seating last year on the, on the cruise. 
I'll eat it on land, on sea. Yeah. That's right. It was the best. My man. Listen, I want to be spiritual. I, I didn't want to say the food was the best thing. The speaker was good, but that steak was close second. Close second. What a diplomat. <laughs> Keith Greer is going to be our speaker again this year. He's, he's spoken the last several years. If you've never heard Keith Greer speak, uh, you'll want to come hear Keith Greer. He's going to speak on the master's manumission and men. What's another word for manumission? That's what I thought. And he did that on purpose. So you all have some homework. You all get your phones out and Google what manumission means. And uh, you'll want to come. Okay? It's a term that Abraham Lincoln's known for. But I'm not going to spoil it. You have to look that up yourselves. Last thing I want to highlight... January 20th, we're planning on having uh, Gary Yeagle come up from uh, Maryland and do a half-day Saturday seminar called Real Men, Real Relationships. Real Men, Real Relationships. Look, we're, we're a bunch of guys. We know we struggle with relationships, right? We just naturally find that difficult, right? Women got it easy. They just get together and bap, 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 bap. They're, they're talking a mile a minute. They form those bonds real quickly. We struggle as men with that. But there's more to it than just conversing with one another. Relationships involve more than that. And Gary's going to unpack that for us. And uh, I hope to see most of you there at that event. January 20th, we'll, we'll start getting information on, on the website for that in the next uh, few weeks. How long do you think it takes to make the pig that we just ate? 12 minutes? Well, I, I, heard, I heard secondhand information that it started last night. I want to thank George. 18 hours, there you go. I want to thank George, and, and if you had any, anybody helping you, thank you so much for, for the work that you put into these, these events. It was very good. All right. It's my pleasure to introduce to you our new assistant pastor, if you haven't met him yet, Dave Kiefer. Dave has spent the last 20 years working with Disciple Makers Ministry, which is a campus ministry. You know, we were searching for a pastor that, that would oversee adult ministries, and, and that, that encompasses everything from men's ministry right down to our, our young adult ministry. It's a pretty broad span there, and it was, a, it was a tough search trying to find just the right match that could reach out to men who are going through life experiences and also relate to the young people. And I think we really found a gem of a person to do that, and David... And um, he's going to share with us his testimony and what God's been doing in his life. And I hope that... Are you going to have a question and answer at the end? If there's time, you might get to ask some, some questions of him that maybe he hasn't covered. But uh, David, come on up and share with us Great. what God's done. Thanks, thanks. Mark. Yeah. appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me here. First of all, I just want to thank everyone for their, uh, just a warm welcome to me and my family. Ever since we got here, uh, we've had nothing but people just going out of their way to welcome us as a family, to lend a helping hand, whatever it may be. And uh, that has made a huge impact on my family. So thank you very much. I was told I have about a half an hour to share my testimony. Now, I'm not a very dynamic person. I don't have a very uh, captivating testimony. So I'm not sure I'll be able to fill up the full half an hour time. But what I do want to do is, is share basically three things. The first thing is how God convinced me of his grace despite my ongoing sense of shame and moral failure. The second is how God convinced me of his goodness even when I didn't get what I wanted. 
And then the third is how God has convinced me that even though his ways are very unexpected, they're filled with hope. So first, how God convinced me of his grace despite my shame and moral failures. I grew up in Baltimore, so I am a Ravens fan. I hope there aren't very many Steelers fans here. Oh, Eagles, okay. I grew up youngest of three kids. I was the uh, accident. I come to find out at my dad's funeral, actually. My dad passed away in April 2016, and my aunt got up and shared how she was going to take credit for the fact that she watched my older brother and sister so my parents could get away for a weekend. This is the first I'd ever heard of this. But it, it explains a lot why my brother and sister were close in age and I was so much younger. So I grew up in Baltimore. I grew up going to a conservative Lutheran church where they sort of laid a foundation of God's holiness and the fear of hell. It was a church that expressed the gospel in word, but most of the people in the church were older, gray-haired old ladies. There wasn't much community in the church. So to me, God always felt distant and irrelevant. As I was going through Sunday school, I remember asking my Sunday school teacher, you know, what must I do to be saved? I didn't want to go to hell. And my Sunday school teacher said, well, you just have to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. What I heard in that was an emphasis on his lordship and an underemphasis on his saving power. And I thought, well, how do I do that? He's like, well, just make Jesus, you know, the driver of your car. And with all my good intentions, of course, I wanted God to be in charge of my life. I had good intentions to surrender my life to him. There was a problem, though, is that my good intentions just never measured up to reality. Just day after day after day, I just continued to fail to do all the good things I knew I should have done. And so God became this person that was distant and constantly disappointed. And in order to sort of salve my conscience, after I was confirmed in church, I just stopped going to church. My mom was the only one who took us to church. My dad was not a churchgoer. And I was too big for her to drag me out of bed. And it worked by ignoring God and sort of distracting myself and putting myself into sports and academics. You know, it kind of salved my conscience a little bit. And then I went through puberty and just the sexual awakening and all the things I got involved with, with sexual activity with women. Then the guilt just went up. And I salved my conscience with just pursuing after sports and finding my identity in those things. And really, God had taken a far, far backseat. I wasn't even going to church. And then my 11th grade year in high school, I got an invitation from a friend to go to a party. Now, the parties I had gone to, usually there was some lubricant to get things moving and for there to be a lot of fun. There was a lot of alcohol. and so. But I show up at this party, there's no alcohol. And people are just having good, clean fun. And halfway through the party, I realized it was a Young Life Club because they invited us to the back porch where a young man who was athletic and young and I thought was actually kind of normal started talking about Jesus Christ in a way I had never heard a person talk about Jesus Christ. Like he was a person that you wanted to hang out with rather than a person you wanted to avoid. And I remember listening to him share 
about Jesus in John 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well. And the thing that surprised me was that Jesus wasn't shocked by this woman's sin. He was completely aware. And yet, accepting, gentle, patient, but he certainly wasn't, you know, sweeping her issues under the rug, but talking about them directly. My Young Life leader planted a seed in my mind that really just started to germinate. He redefined sin for me. He said, you know, sin isn't just bad things you do, but sin is when you exchange the best thing for just really good things. And the best thing is for you to be in a right relationship with God. That's what you were made for. And sin is when you give that up and exchange it for all these second best things of pleasures and success and status and popularity. And I just could not get that out of my head. And so I just kept going back to this party. It was a Young Life Club, week after week. And just over the weeks, starting to understand that I had a God who knew my sin and had done whatever it took to pay for its penalty in full so that I didn't have to go around feeling guilty and ashamed all the time. And that was life to me. And not only that he had covered my sin and paid my penalty, but that he had changed my status, that no longer was I this disappointment, but I was a beloved son, fully forgiven, and that he wanted a relationship with me, one marked by patience and love and steadfastness. And I remember my Young Life leader saying, Dave, until you're convinced that God's going to forgive you completely, you're never going to be honest with yourself, with other people, or with God. And he was absolutely right. But as I understood the grace of Jesus Christ, there was no sin, nothing that was so shameful that he could not forgive, he could not cleanse, he could not heal. Then all of a sudden I had the freedom to admit my junk to him without fear, knowing that he could handle it, that he could cleanse it, that he could redeem it. And so that's the first part of my story. It wasn't so much that I needed to be convinced of my sin. I actually was convinced of my sin. I needed to be convinced that God's grace was greater than my sin. And that despite my shame and my moral failures, God's grace could heal second part of my testimony has to do with God convincing me of his goodness, even when I get what I don't want. I grew up with a pretty charmed life. You know, my biggest form of suffering is my parents never let us get an Atari 2400. <laughs> and we didn't get a VCR either until everyone else in the neighborhood had one. Okay, kids, what a VCR is, <laughs> it's just tape. Right? And you had to rewind it if you actually wanted to get back to the previous scene. It would spin. <laughs> yeah. So I really didn't suffer, suffer much growing up. You know, I found a lot of my identity in sports. I played soccer my whole life. I got a scholarship to Bucknell University to play Division I soccer. My sophomore year, I got sick and I wasn't doing really well and I was so afraid of failure, I kind of sabotaged myself because I didn't want to be the guy who tried his hardest and failed. So I just didn't run that summer. I didn't do anything. I look back, it's this thing I totally regret. 
that instead of just trying my hardest and failing, I kind of gave up so that I could protect my pride. I can admit that to myself now. I couldn't then. I met my wife at a car wash, by the way. She was uh, raising money for Young Life to go on a missions trip to Mexico. And I was at that stage where I just started going to Young Life camp. I wasn't born again yet, but I was really intrigued. And this community was so attractive, and there were cute Christian girls. And so they're washing cars, and I decided to stick around and help them. Thankfully, by God's grace, we never dated in high school. She was never single at the same time I was single, which was God's mercy. But we did go to my prom together, only not as dates. And this confused my kids. Jack, my oldest here, raise your hand, Jack. I guess it was two or three years ago, Jack's going through an old book of ours, and he sees that we're standing in front of Grandmom and Pop's front door, and it's eight of us, only mom and dad aren't standing together and they match other people and who are these strangers that they match because my wife and i actually went to the prom together in the same limousine just not as dates and so we finally explained that to them and that was an awkward moment but anyway that's a tangent sorry about that so when my wife and i got married we moved to bloomsburg and we were doing campus ministry there and we knew we wanted to start a family but we didn't try until a year after we had been married But about after a year, she hadn't gotten pregnant. And we would go out on weekly dates. And I remember being at the mall, and we ducked our head into one of these, I think it was a Walden bookstore. We walked to the back, and we were just going through one of the sections of health. And I got a book out on infertility, and I opened it up, and I read the introduction. It says, if you have been trying to have kids for a year and can't, you are technically infertile. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Here this possibility was becoming a reality. And I remember looking at Marty, and she's like, can we get this book? I sheepishly went up to the counter, and you know, I felt like I had this, uh, I don't know, scarlet letter on me, you know, to have to buy a book on infertility from this stranger at this bookstore. And we went home, and as we read more, we just started weeping. And that was the first time I realized I just wasn't getting what I wanted. Life wasn't going my way. And uh, at first, I I was fearful. That fear later turned into anger at the Lord. Um, And then I would say with both my wife and I, she worked in labor and delivery as a nurse. And that became increasingly difficult for her because she always wanted to get pregnant and have a kid. She had one lady who was a graduate student who came in with stomach pains, completely in denial that she was pregnant, and six hours later gave birth. She had no idea she was pregnant is what she said, but she was a master's student. And the wheels came off for Marty after that. She was just so angry with the Lord. Why would the Lord bless this woman with a child and not me? And she'd been going to, you know, baby showers for five years. And the first two or three years, it was okay. But then when those kids have their second kids, then, yeah, our anger turned to depression. And around that same time, friends of ours that we had met in a Bible study a couple years earlier gave us a call on the phone and said, Brent is in end-stage liver failure, and we wanted you to know. Brent, I had known very well, you know, I thought we had this intimate friendship, was withholding this really big thing, which is that he had this liver disease for 15 years, and that he was getting to end-stage liver failure, he was letting people know, and that he would be 
praying to see who God might raise up to do living donor transplants, which Johns Hopkins had just started doing. Long story short, there was a couple different people that got tested. I was one of them. I was I was one of the best matches. And so within a couple months, I'm, you know, down at Hopkins and uh, ready to donate my liver to my friend. The reason I bring that up is because until that time, I hadn't suffered very much, and I'm going through suffering with infertility, but I had the privilege of walking through suffering with my friend who shamed me by how much he trusted the Lord and his goodness in the midst of end-stage liver failure. And this man had been suffering for years, and the reason we didn't know was just because he was living life. You would never guess. He ran, you know, five miles a day. He was athletic. He was energized. And going through the surgery here, I gave Loba my liver, and I'm in the hospital for a week afterwards, and I was the biggest crybaby. I realized, boy, I don't suffer really well. <laughs> and he suffered so well. Here, I'm the theologian. I'm going to a seminary, and this guy's an engineer. And he taught me so much about just choosing to rest in God's goodness, even when you don't get what you want. And all of a sudden, he just opened my eyes, going back to the scriptures and rereading how familiar our God is with suffering. That the incarnation is not about God standing off from suffering or just, you know, giving us proverbs to think through it and how do we make sense of it, but it's God entering into our suffering, sharing our suffering, empathizing with our suffering, and sustaining us in the midst of it. And so that's sort of the second big stage of my testimony, how God showed me his goodness, even when I don't get what I want. And that really changed my perspective. All of a sudden I realized I really can just choose to embrace what God has for me. And it wasn't long after that that Marty and I just really embraced God's vision for growing our family through adoption. And it happened after we had already gotten all of our um, tests done, and to this day, Marty and I have no idea why we're infertile. You know, the test for me is easy but embarrassing. For her, it was much more invasive and costly. But the doctors kept saying, everything's normal. Which, how do you fix something that's normal? But the Lord had just given us a vision for pursuing adoption, and we were so excited to do that. It was a little different than I expected. I always thought that I would have kids that look like me. And instead, the Lord blessed me with kids that look a lot better than me. <laughs> And our kids are such a delight. Now, Jack and I were talking about this on the way over here. I said, Jack, I'm going to be sharing some things that maybe you haven't heard before. And I was really sensitive about that because, you know, I don't want Jack feeling at all like he was like a second-class kid because he's an adopted child rather than a birth child. Jack's my son. I don't introduce him as my adopted son. He's my son. I love this kid. He's mine. I forget that he's adopted. We all, we all do. I mean, he'll have allergies. I'm like, ah, oh, you probably got it from your mother. And then he's like, Mom, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, yeah, you're right. It doesn't. But God has been good. Yeah, so God convinced me of his grace despite my shame. God's convinced me of his goodness even when I don't get what I want. And then third, God's convinced me that his unexpected ways are a better path for hope. 
when I joined Disciple Makers, the president of Disciple Makers got up and he, he read a passage from Judges. And he said, I want to introduce you to one of my heroes. Judges 3, verse 31, he says, There's a guy named Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. It's all we know of Shamgar. That's it. A verse. And he says, this is my life verse. I'm like, you are a weird man. (laughs) And then we just started talking about it. And he said, how do you think he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad? Does anyone here know what an ox goad is? It's a long, pointy stick that you take and you, you motivate an ox to move. You just poke him. Well, he kills 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Wow. Was this like He-Man? He just jumped in the middle and went crazy in, in a half an hour? Was this just someone who was somehow able to, I don't know, Hypnotize people to stand in a straight line so he could skewer three or four at the same time. The point is, is that we tend to read this and gloss over and think, well, it was probably a miracle. But you know what? There was no mention of it being a miracle. In other words, Shamgar, who's a farmer, is living during a time in Israel's history when the leaders have stopped doing the right thing. They were supposed to finish the job of cleansing the land of idolatry and idolaters and protect the people from raiders, and they'd stop doing it. And there's no standing army. They've let it go. And so Shamgar's a farmer. And what does this farmer do? He stands up and does the right thing when no one else will. He does three things. And I'll never forget Bill Drips when he said this. He says, uh, Shamgar just started where he was, he took what he had, and he did what he could. Well, where was he? Well, he's on his farm, and he's a farmer. And he didn't wait to get trained as a soldier before he did the right thing. He started with where he was as a farmer, with what he had, an ox goad. He didn't have a sword. He didn't have a machete. He just had an ox goad. And he did what he could. Well, what could he do? Well, he wasn't going to declare war in the Philistines in the middle of his fields. But what he probably was going to do is late at night, he'd pick them off one by one. Day after day after day. So Tom, Dick, and Harry, the Philistines, are walking along. And Tom and Dick are so engrossed in fellowship, they don't even realize that Harry went missing. (laughs) Because of Shamgar. And Shamgar, just through faithful obedience to step up and do the right thing when no one else would, it says, he too saved Israel. And that gave me a lot of hope, because I don't know about you, I want to see God work in big ways. I want to see him change my community, redeem my neighborhood, change the world, right? But I'm often tempted to think, well... My neighbor, who's athletic and much cooler than me, you know what he really needs? He's so in the NFL. He needs 
me to take him to a men's retreat where some NFL quarterback's going to get up and share about Jesus, not some no-name pastor like this guy. But you know, God specializes in working through the mundane, normal, average Joes who just step up and decide to do the right thing even when no one else will. And he often brings salvation in the most unexpected way, using a pointy stick. And for those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we know that this should not sound strange to us because the ultimate salvation that God brought was kind of through a stick. Not one, but two. And they were tied together into a cross. And Jesus said that he had come to make all things new. And everyone thought the way that he would do it was through riding into Jerusalem on a steed, hacking down the enemies of the Romans and setting up his kingdom. But instead, how does he come? On a donkey. You ever see a man ride a donkey? It's pathetic. They're about this tall, and you're... Here comes the Savior. And instead of taking the life of his enemies to deliver his people, what does he do? The most unexpected thing. He lays down his life for his enemies. And not just in any way, in the most embarrassing, shameful way. He allows the Romans to strip him naked, to beat him, to mock him, to pierce him, and to hang him up for all to see in a way that was cruel, but also very mundane. I don't know if you know, I mean, thousands of people were crucified when Jesus was crucified. And everyone who's sitting there is not thinking, as they're watching this happen, they're thinking, wow, this restores my hope in God. Wow, the revolution has begun. No, the Romans knew how to crush hope, how to end revolutions, and crucifixion was the way to do it. And yet, in the most unexpected way, God turns it on his head and says, this is how I'm going to build hope. I'm going to build hope through a cross. I'm going to build hope through shame and disappointment and mockery. Have you ever thought how just insane it is that we, as Christians, hold up the banner of a cross as something beautiful and glorious? Do you know how odd that would have appeared to anyone who lived during first century times? (laughs) But what it reminds us of and what it declares so powerfully is that the hope that God brings into our lives is not an instable hope that can only survive in the safe places of life, you know, in the nursery school of life. But the hope of Christianity can grow and thrive in the darkest places, the hardest places, the places of loss and death and betrayal, the places where your enemies mock you. And that, that is good news. I don't know you men yet. But my guess is you're not that different from me, and that is there are certain days you just really struggle to have hope. Is God 
working in my family? Is God working in my kid's life, in my work life? There's so many different things that can threaten our hope. And here's the good news. You don't need to be afraid. Because the hope that we have in Christ is the very type of hope that is time-tested and that proves powerful in the midst of those darkest times. Maybe you're here and you're in one of those dark times. Maybe you're struggling through an addiction. Maybe you're struggling through a significant loss in your life and you're just really angry with God, but you don't want to let anyone know that because this is religious people and you're not allowed to. Let me encourage you. Our God is a God who can breathe hope into your life no matter how dark and hopeless your life has become. And he'll do it in the most unexpected way with the most unexpected means. Now, it will require that you turn to him and that you trust that he can do it. The ox goad was powerless until he took it and did what he could with it. The cross of Jesus Christ is powerless until you embrace it, until you make it your own. But as you do, you begin to discover God's power in weakness, in darkness, and in suffering. And through those things, he brings new life, resurrected hope. And so that's the third way that God's been at work in my life. He's done it through the story of infertility. He's done it a little bit, and I can tell you more about this later, but I'm running out of time. Just in my own broken dreams, in other areas regarding work and ministry, that God is a God who grows hope in the darkest of places. That is good news. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for the fact that you are a God who surprises us with your grace, that it is bigger than our sin and our shame, that your forgiveness is complete because Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin on the cross, and so we need not fear. And that as we confess our sin, we can trust that you have the wherewithal, the love to forgive it, and we can have confidence in that forgiveness so we don't have to hide And we don't have to linger in our shame, but we can come out into the light and the freedom of forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, that you prove to us your goodness, even when we don't get what we want. God, truth be told, we don't even know what we want half the time, or we think we know. But Lord, you surprise us with even better gifts than we ever expected. And those best gifts often come when we don't get what we thought we wanted. Lord, I know that's been the case in my life, and I thank you for that. And God, I further thank you that you are a God who just works through the very unexpected. It's often not the big bang or the, the miracles and the healings and the huge events, but it's through the small things when... We start where we are, take what we have, and do what we can. It's often through the unexpected things, like a pointy stick or like a man hanging on a cross to pay for our sin. 
God, you show us that hope is more secure because hope is still sure, even in those dark places. You prove it in the cross. You've proven it in my life, and you are proving it in this community that there's no despair so firm that your power cannot break through and bring new life. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, David. Does anybody have any questions they want to ask Dave, just to kind of get to know him a little bit? Okay. Let's take the next 10 minutes at our table groups, sharing some prayer requests and, and a little time in prayer.